You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Well, this morning we too are remembering two of the country's most celebrated poets, Maura Vakanthi and Brendan Kennelly. Here's Maura Vakanthi speaking to RTE Radio 1 in 2000, explaining why she wrote in the Irish language. English is certainly my everyday language and it's the language in which I write prose with ease. But the language that means most to me, I mean, the language emotionally uh, that touches me is certainly Irish. And I feel that when I write in Irish, I write with authority. I know when I write in English uh, that it's a pale reflection of what I could write in Irish. So you can be more colourful, perhaps? And I can't help being colourful. I mean, that's the nature of the language. The turf smoke clings to it, you know. It, it, it is very difficult to write, at least for me, to write detached prose in Irish. And of course, detached prose is not what you want to write if you're writing poetry. Maura Vakanthi in 2000 on RTE Radio 1. And speaking to RTE's Writer in Profile series in 1976, Brendan Kennelly explained why he was drawn to write poetry. I would say that poetry is a sort of, it's a sort of connection between the individual uh, mind and all these minds and sensibilities that move outside you. A book you mentioned at the beginning, The Voices, I was trying there to connect with the world about me. Uh, because, well, you have your inner life. I have my inner life, so has everybody. But there is also this world that's moving about you, and how do you make sense of it? Now, you try to connect with poetry, and you select images uh, from that outer world, which coincide with what you mm. feel. And so they become kind of symbols of, of your own emotion. You, you literally create your own world. Brendan Kennelly there in 1976. Uxaron Nehern, Michael D. Higgins, good morning. Good morning. It's a sad day indeed, isn't it, when we say farewell to two such significant poets and two people of such immense importance to the cultural life of this country. Your thoughts this morning, President? Of course it is. Uh, these are two great figures to, that are a loss to poetry, but it has been a very sad time for the arts and for culture generally. Yesterday I was at the funeral of Tony McMahon, the celebration really of Tony McMahon's life and music, and then Paddy Maloney, then there's so many. We have lost so many people, but these are two extraordinary important figures. I think that Brendan Kennelly probably because of his commitment to sharing poetry, his commitment to performance. I think that he and people like Paul Dirk and, and Nulini Gonan and others going around the country created huge audiences in extraordinary places for poetry. Uh, Brendan, I, I had the privilege of knowing as a friend, I, I was listening to Gerald Daw making reference, for example, to Brendan's commitment to poetry in prisons. Uh, I filled in for him once in, in, when he couldn't make it to Mountjoy, and I, I read some poems myself there. But that was the kind of person he is. And when I, I was paying tribute to him, said that he had... W- 
crafted a, an extraordinary place in the affections of the Irish people. I really meant it. But it did so much, as I've said, to creating an audience for, for poetry. Again, listening to Maura Markenty speaking about why she's writing in Irish, that's a very, very important statement, I think, she makes of the proximity of the Irish sounds and the Irish language to nature. Every sound has a reason for it, and the words coming to her, therefore, had that authenticity. I think she was very influenced, of course, by her uncle, uh, Padraig de Bruyn. And I think that if what I noted, remember, I, I had the privilege of meeting her, was the, the way in which she had a high standard, a formalism, as it were, a great commitment to the words in Irish. And she could be quite um, a relaxed person out of the poetry, but it, hers is an extraordinary contribution in so many different ways, a life of courage and a life of defying convention in so many ways. It, it was um, she, in in as you say what she was saying herself there in two thousand about the 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 Irish being the emotional language that touches her, and we were speaking to Alvin Garvey, the, the UCC uh, lecturer and yeah. poet earlier, and she said uh, that she, that she believed that in the times that that uh, Maura Mackenzie lived in, the fact that she wrote in Irish allowed her to get away with more. Well, I think it is certainly the case that um, for a long while, I remember in the early days of Vradinagaitat and indeed uh, to an extent in television, too, you could discuss matters in Irish that it hadn't, if you like, been caught in the web of self-censorship and formal censorship in English. That certainly was the case in relation to international affairs. But in her case, in the poem, she is very interesting insofar as that she writes very directly uh, about sensuality and she writes about personal feeling and it's very revelatory. It doesn't hold anything back. There is no, if you like, evasion in it. And that's a great strength. Uh, I, I, there is pain that is expressed, but also there is feeling. And I, I think that that is certainly uh, the case. I, I think that in, in Brendan's case as well, um, I was thinking just as you were asking me to, to come on I about Brendan and the morning, for example, in that poem beginning, uh, which Gerald, uh, which you you made reference to earlier, you know, he describes getting up before the the, the light has come and walking around Dublin, uh, uh, along Pembroke Road, and uh, you know he 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 speaks about. Uh, he speaks about the, 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 like a laughing girl leaping down from the Dublin mountains is how he describes the light coming. But Brendan was, had so much uh, to give and he gave it so generously. I think in 19, when he, we were celebrating his 80th birthday in, in the Abbey Theatre, he was asked how would he like to be remembered and he said he would like his poems to be remembered and he would like them to be said out loud. And that was his deep commitment. It is why, I feel like, that he had, he was looked at and appreciated with such affection by people of all ages in, in all places. And then I, I, I think maybe uh, it hasn't been given sufficient attention is 
the way in which he portrayed the women in his classic work on 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 uh, for the, I'm thinking uh, of the Antigones and the Ismenes and so on. He was well, brought very strongly forward uh, their feelings. I think again in relation to Cromwell and Judas. I agree with Gerald Dole. These are very, very strong excursions into the inner feelings of the people who are protagonists in action. And again, they're very strong poems. These are, that is the epic form, really, at its best. We are grateful to Uktaran Heron for joining us this morning to remember Maura Vakanti and Brendan Kennelly. You see, that's not the normal sound you hear on Morning Ireland of a Friday, is it? Welcome back to the New York Brass Band from York. Of course, they're playing happy and there is a great sense of happiness uh, here in Cork this weekend. And joining me, Fiona Collins, the chairperson of the Cork Jazz Festival Committee. And a very happy weekend for you, Fiona, uh, getting it back. And also uh, Pascal Sheehy, our southern editor, who gave us that report on the reopening here earlier in the programme. Fiona, the first post-pandemic um, post-lockdown yeah. uh, because the pandemic to some large extent is still with us so happiness obviously nervousness was it really hard putting this jazz together um, definitely happiness nervousness excitement all coming together definitely um, there's always a slight apprehension about it we'd, we'd looked um, at planning for the festival before the restrictions were to be lifted so we were definitely going to do something but then when we heard about the restrictions being lifted we worked towards that always with it you know the ex- expectation that it might be revised we were working towards that but there's definitely an excitement there's a buzz in the air in Cork again back for the weekend and I'm just thrilled to see it yeah. really thrilled you can see it in the smile on <laughs> yeah. your face as well and Pascal while there is a lot of nervousness and Mary Favier was talking to us about that and Paul Reid as well you also got the sense walking around last night that this was nearly something that couldn't be held back yeah there's a balance of need going on here at the moment um There is an apprehension about reopening and things like that, but at least that's taking place in a regulated uh, manner in nightclubs and in bars and clubs and things like that. I will remind people about the pictures we saw in this city from last summer when... Thousands of people were gathering in the Docklands in Cork on Fridays, Saturdays and Sunday nights um, in a completely unregulated fashion. Now, that was an accident waiting to happen, and I think everybody recognised that. So while there is maybe a sense of uh, apprehension uh, ahead of reopening, at least it's happening uh, in a regulated fashion. Indeed, and uh, one of the things we were talking to Deirdre Shocknessy about earlier was the, the various road works and transport works and infrastructure works that are going on here in Cork. Uh, in terms of development, what impact has lockdown had? What's the story? Well, the, the changes that uh, the road works, the airport redevelopment, uh, the works even on the rail line coming into the city, that's part of a range of transformational change currently taking place uh, in this city. And uh, to put it in context, the, the sort of change that you saw in the Docklands area uh, of Dublin uh, in the late 90s and the early uh, noughties, that is now taking place here in Cork to build a, a counterbalance to Dublin. 300 and 50 million, a third 
of a billion euro uh, in state funding has been announced for the Docklands and Cork and that will uh, give way to 5 billion euro um, in over the next 20 years and we've already seen this this is taking place just a few hundred metres away number one Albert Key Horgan's Key big office development Albert Key Penrose Dock Navigation Square so the whole Docklands area of the city is being transformed before our eyes as we speak um, on a wider level in IDA backed companies um, there were more people employed in IDA-backed companies in Cork last year than there ever was before. It's almost double what it was uh, in 2010, and there is every evidence. Uh, 17 investment and jobs projects already for the city. There is every evidence here that the bounce back will be quick. Indeed, and that's something uh, indeed many people here will be looking forward to, but looking forward to more immediately this weekend, Fiona. Tell us about some of the highlights and tell us what will be the same, what will be different this jazz. So this weekend we have 60 venues taking place, uh, or 60 venues taking part, I should say. Um, We have acts like Matthew Halsall, Hypnotic Brass Ensemble taking place in the Opera House and in the Everyman. Um, You have all the different pubs across the city taking part. Um, For me, one of my favourite parts of the weekend is actually the jazz bands on the street, the likes of the lovely band you hear behind us. You know, they're going to be playing pop-ups and on the stage in Emmet Place over the weekend. Um, So, you know, just just coming into the city and getting a feel for the festival um, and seeing the bands on the streets is definitely one of my favourite parts of the festival. What's the economic bounce it gives to the city of Cork? Um, it's it's around 25 million. It's really hard to put a figure on because you know there's the official spend from the budget uh, from the festival and what that is, and then you have you know that indirect spend as well of what happens in in the rest of the city over the weekend. So it's very hard to put a figure on, but it's it's estimated to be around 25 million. And it is something. I mean, you come here these week jazz weekends in Cork Pascal. They are just something unique, aren't they? They're quite unique. It's something that's intrinsic to the city. We didn't have one last year, and there's a huge sense. Uh, of anticipation in terms of what we're going to see over the next two or three days. Well, thank you both for joining us to talk about it this morning and we hope indeed that everybody has a safe as well as a very happy uh, next couple of weekends. Thank you to our band, the New York Bass Band. They'll be playing here at the Jazz over the weekend and they'll play us out now. We're going to start this morning here in Drogheda in County Louth. We're in the Mill Enterprise Centre, a co-working centre for start-up businesses. Shortly we'll be getting political reaction to the latest announcements, but we're going to talk first of all to Dr Ian Cunahan. He's a respiratory consultant and clinical director at the uh, Department of Medicine at Our Lady of Lords Hospital here in Drogheda. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. You're also the hospital's COVID lead. What's the current situation? Good morning, Rachel, and thanks for asking me to come on. Um, I guess the current situation is the hospital's entering into its typically its busiest time of the year. And at the moment, we've 23 patients admitted with uh, COVID-related illness. So um, that represents 10% of the medical beds within the hospital. Um, And, you know, this is a time of year with increasing normal respiratory illnesses 
where we tend to overflow those beds already into the, the surgical wards, sometimes the gynecology wards. Um, and it's concerning that we're taking up essentially what is a, a large medical ward just purely with, with COVID. So it's very busy in the hospital at the moment. We have large presentations to the emergency department uh, on a daily basis. I think August overall had the, was the busiest hospital for unscheduled care uh, that we've ever had. Really? Why was that, do you think? Well, I think we've just had, um, you know, so a year and a half of people mm -hmm. having poorer access um, to the healthcare that they've been looking for. They've possibly tended to migrate towards the emergency department um, where, uh, you know, when they're not uh, not able to, to get um, what they need or or, or unwell and, and need uh, acute attention. We've also, I think you've seen, in the, you, obviously, in the media last week about the presentations of children within the hospital, and we have a paediatric emergency department, so that's been incredibly busy um, in the last number of weeks as well. And typically now, the non-COVID patients, what are they coming to you with? Well, they're coming in with the, the usual uh, medical complaints, so people who are... Um, older and frailer with, with minor medical um, illnesses maybe, but that, that, that knock them off their baseline where they're not able to, to, to look after themselves at home or their family aren't able to look after them at home because um, they've got uh, a decompensation of a, a chronic condition mm -hmm. or a, uh, an infection on top of their, their other comorbidities and, and frailty. And the, the usual um, respiratory illnesses, people coming in with pneumonias, um, flare-ups of their asthma, COPD, that's what, what I tend to see. Uh, um, uh, and uh, people present with, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, bad illnesses like cancers um, and things as well mm. throughout I, the year. So the, the usual things. I gather you've had a case of flu. And I think last year, didn't we have a winter almost entirely without flu? But, but this year, there are early signs that it's out there. Yeah, well, uh, that's, um, I just got notified, yeah, that our first laboratory positive case of influenza um, this week, I think it was two days ago. And so that really is a concern because I guess um, while we've seen an uptick in the ordinary um, viruses um, uh, such as RSV, particularly within children, uh, and maybe a little bit earlier than usual this year, we are kind of been, I've been hoping that there wouldn't be as big a, a flu season this year and that maybe we'd get away with it again but I think it just highlights how important it will be for people to get the influenza vaccination particularly people who thought maybe they didn't benefit from it last year I think this year it's going to be really important um, to, to get that. Mm, is there a danger I mean you're obviously very busy already and we're, we're very early on in, in, in the winter season is there a danger that all of this is going to have a knock-on effect and that operations will have to be cancelled? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's always a risk. I mean, we, we work in, um, as I say, we tend to become just overflow uh, during the, the winter months, typically with medical uh, admissions and uh, people ending up spending more time in the emergency department and the patient experience time ex extending during that time, having to flow into surgical beds. Um, you know, one of, we've been fortunate enough to have a colleague uh, join us from the NHS. He's worked in the NHS for the last 10 years and he uh, was meeting me as clinical director and asking me, you know, where's the space that we open the beds for the winter months? 
um, for the additional capacity, you know, because that's the norm. But that's just not something that, that, that we have access to. Um, yeah. so how, how have the past 18 months affected the hospital? I mean, it's been pretty much non-stop, hasn't it? It's, it's been busy. And I think we're getting to a time where the people that have, you know, really, uh, you know, dived into um, this and um, just worked through it and given their all to it are getting really burnt out you know, um, particularly over the summer months, uh, I've seen that. I think we've noticed within the hospital that when we get a big upsurge in, you know, COVID cases where our ICU is full and we're working at a ward level with patients who really we would prefer to have in an ICU or HDU environment, that it takes a huge toll on the nurses and doctors and other health and social care professionals looking after them. I think on our respiratory ward after this wave at the beginning of the year between March and July, we saw 24% of our staff nurses move on. So What, they, they just had enough? So I guess for, there'll be a natural turnover within, within any ward, but it's been the highest turnover of any ward within the hospital. So that just shows the toll that it's taking on those staff because we've been really fortunate to have excellent nursing staff um, you know, throughout the hospital, but uh, the ones that I've been working with over the last 18 months, I've been really proud of. And so it's sad to see them feel that they need to move to other jobs. And, and I'm sure that's related to the stress and the toll that it's taken on them. Dr. Ian Cunahan, COVID lead at Our Lady of Lords Hospital here in Drogheda. Thank you very much for joining us. The first race equality study in universities and colleges here has found that staff from ethnic minorities are much more likely to earn significantly less than white Irish staff. The study was carried out by the Higher Education Authority, which surveyed over 3,000 staff. Dr Lucy Michael is the co-author of the report and she's with us now. Dr Michael, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. Let's talk about pay first of all. You looked at who earns less than €60,000. What did you find? found that 66% of ethnic minority staff uh, were on a salary at that rate, uh, which is far higher than either those that we uh, described as white Irish or white other. Uh, we use census categories uh, for that. And pay is really indicative of much wider picture in this, and it's the first time it's been captured, which is why this, import, this report is so important. And were there similar findings on those who earn a higher level of money, those who earn more than 75000 Yes, and uh, what's quite interesting, I suppose, is that you get a, a tiny blip at the very top end where you get some international recruitment to the highest professorial and management posts, but there's still a very tiny number in the larger sector. Um, but what's also interesting is at the very bottom, at those under 30,000, there's actually no difference across the different groups. Okay. So uh, it's really as you start to move up the scale that we really see those gaps widening significantly. And then the types of employment, you studied that as well and asked questions. And what did you find in terms of those on contract and those who were given staff positions? This was something we were really interested in, given anecdotal evidence and, uh, across the sector. We found overwhelmingly that this was a, a picture that white Irish staff were much more likely to be in full-time permanent contracts uh, than those who were white other or from ethnic minority groups. So what are your conclusions then at the end of this study, Dr. Michael? Well, this study not only talks about pay and roles, it also talks about experiences of unfair treatment and discrimination. It talks about 
uh, the the perception across all staff groups from all ethnic or ethnic backgrounds of what a picture of race equality looks like in their universities, colleges, and institutes of technology. Uh, and what we've really seen is that uh, these institutions are not keeping pace with change in Irish society, where they should actually be in a leadership position showing other institutions how to do it. Uh, they're not demonstrating a real commitment in terms of sh- making those policies visible and functional. They're not keeping up with uh, the, the the mechanisms to report uh, racism after it's happened when that's abuse or discrimination. Um, they're not uh, dealing ac- adequately with uh, transparency and recruitment, uh, mentoring programs are largely absent. There is right across the, the specter of activities uh, in universities, colleges and institutes of technology, there is a need to address race equality. It's not happening naturally. It's not keeping up with the pace of change. And I think the biggest finding for me from this report is actually in this respect, all institutions are behind their own staff in anticipating what changes required. A, a huge wave of support in this those institutions to make changes with huge support from their own staff and it's now time for leadership in those institutions to step forward to acknowledge race inequality exists as the staff in this survey do uh, and to follow their own staff's recommendations uh, for change around recruitment, around support within uh, academic careers uh, and other careers within those institutions, around the kinds of roles uh, that people operate and how those are given uh, uh, credit and visibility with the institution uh, and really keep pace with what's happening across Europe. Uh, there have been a number of reports in the international landscape uh, on this. Some Irish universities have been part of those uh, reports, um, but really the Irish uh, the Irish higher education landscape isn't keeping uh, pace with this. Uh, the HEA Centre uh, has been leading, obviously, on, on gender inequality, uh, and there has been quite a number of, of changes in regard to that. Uh, this now really moves us into the next uh, phase of action uh, on equality, diversity and inclusion. Uh, we've recommended an intersectional approach so that that good work that started on gender equality uh, is expanded to consider uh, race and ethnicity so that they don't become competing agendas, if you like, uh, but to continue that work uh, on really positive diversification uh, of the university landscape and, and colleges and institutes of technology um, and the, the um the embedding of policies and practices which disrupt the discrimination that's emerged there uh, as a as a result of historic practice, if you like. Yeah, because is it fair to say it's not reflective of the student populations? It's certainly not reflective of the student population. Um, that student population uh, is increasingly diverse. And I suppose one of the reasons for that is there aren't the kind of barriers uh, to the student body becoming diversified that there are for the staff body becoming diversified. There's a really large... Um, untapped pool of potential uh, amongst uh, academics, uh, qualified academics in Ireland. We know that academics from ethnic minority backgrounds are not finding out about the jobs. They're finding out about them too late. They're not getting through to interview stage. When they are, uh, their qualifications are being discounted uh, in the in the selection process, uh, both pre- and post-interview, um, and they're simply not getting those jobs. That's why they're ending okay. up in this casual, precarious contract. That's uh, fascinating. And moved outside academia uh, altogether. And, and very crucial report. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Lucy Michael, who co-authored that report on behalf of the Higher Education Authority. Into the US now and the Hollywood actor Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun that killed a cinematographer and wounded the director on a film set in New Mexico. Anusha Sakui of the LA Times has been telling me more. 
So, as you mentioned, this film, it's called Rust. It's a Western that's been shot in New Mexico. What's been reported and from the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office is that the actor, Alec Baldwin, who is also a producer on that film, uh, fired a prop gun uh, on the set, uh, which killed the director of photography, called Helena Hutchins, who was 42, and injured the director, uh, Joel Souza, who is 48. This is quite shocking. Is there any further information on how this could happen? There isn't at the moment. Um, All we know at this time is that no charges have been filed, uh, but the sheriff's office is uh, interviewing, you know, witnesses. Um, Production is obviously halted now on uh, what was a, you know, low budget movie, which began filming earlier this month. What are people in the movie industry saying around uh, the use of prop guns? People will be surprised to think that a prop gun shooting blanks would have the capacity to kill someone. Obviously, um, it's rare and there are a lot of um, safety protocols around around weapons on set that, that should keep people safe. Um, there have been terrible accidents on film sets. You know, back in uh, 1993, Brandon Lee, um, the son of the late, late martial arts star Bruce Lee, he died um, by hit by a, a, a 44 caliber Slug while filming a death scene for the movie The Crow. Um, Bruce Lee's daughter Shannon Lee actually uh, paid a tribute to um, Hutchins and Sousa today um, after hearing of the incident. And um, she said, you know, no one should ever be killed by a gun on a film set. That's just, we don't know what's happened on this this film set and, um, uh, you know, uh, how how it's possible that, 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 that these two could have been injured or killed. And we have to await further investigations. Alec Baldwin, of course, a hugely successful actor who's reached, I suppose, a whole new audience in recent years with his impersonations of Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I mean, he's um, obviously a household name and um, he was producing this movie and so would have had a heightened role in it. And, uh, you know, obviously is, you know, well known for, um, you know, his roles uh, on SNL as, as, you know, doing the Donald Trump impressions recently, um, but also for um, uh, his uh, NBC show, 30 Rock on NBC, which, uh, which you know, which he and Tina Fey uh, made into a uh, hilarious uh, comedy. Anusha Sakui of the LA Times there joining me a little earlier. A former British soldier who'd been on trial for the attempted murder of a County Tyrone man almost 50 years ago has died. Dennis Hutchings had been on trial in Belfast, charged in connection with the killing of John Pat Cunningham back in 1974. Yesterday, the judge was told that he'd contracted COVID. Our Northern correspondent, Conor McCauley, is on the line. Conor, how did this news emerge? Uh, Good morning, Rachel. Well, this trial had actually been running for about two weeks, but it had only been sitting for three days, each of those weeks to facilitate uh, Mr Hutchings, who needed treatment for uh, chronic kidney disease and a heart condition. The trial had actually been adjourned last Friday because Mr Hutchings felt unwell. And yesterday, when we came to uh, monitor the trial (coughs) again, uh, his counsel revealed that he'd tested positive for COVID uh, on Saturday and was self-isolating in his Belfast hotel room. 
His condition then appears to have worsened through the day and we understand that he was taken by ambulance from his hotel uh, to the Matter Hospital in Belfast where he, he died yesterday around tea time. Uh, the news emerged then when a veterans group which has been supporting him during his trial uh, put the news on social media with the, with the full support of his family yesterday evening. Tell us about Dennis Hutchings. What was he accused of? But Dennis Hutchings was 80, a former member of the Lifeguards Regiment. He went on trial in early October for the attempted murder of a man called John Pat Cunningham in Ben Burb in 1974. Now, John Pat Cunningham was a 27-year-old man uh, with learning difficulties. Uh, we were told that he was very scared of the army and that, in fact, when he met them, he would often try and hide. That is what appears to have happened on this occasion. He was walking on a country road near his home when he uh, was met by a mobile uh, convoy of army land rovers. He took to the fields and started to run. Uh, a number of soldiers then followed him into the field. Uh, a number of shots were, were fired and, and Mr Cunningham was hit several times. Now, Mr Hutchings was leading that patrol. He was one of two soldiers said to have fired the rifles. There were no bullets recovered, so there were no forensics uh, to sustain the murder charge and that's why he was on the charge of attempted murder. This isn't an outcome that anyone could have wanted. Has there been any political reaction? <clears throat> there has. There's been reaction overnight a lot of, <clears throat> pardon me, on uh, social media, uh, particularly from unionists around the, I suppose, the appropriateness of these kind of legacy cases involving uh, elderly army veterans. Uh, the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, said the whole case raised serious questions, not just the decision to put a man who was obviously elderly but also quite ill on trial like this, but he, Mr Donaldson was also questioning the robustness of the evidence on which the entire case uh, had hung. Um, the UUP leader, Doug, Doug Beatty, he's called for a full and thorough independent review. He, he actually said, did this trial hasten Mr Hutchings' death and did it meet the evidential and public interest tests? And then Michelle Gildernew, the Sinn Féin MP for Fermanagh South Tyrone, uh, that's the constituency that would cover the area in which uh, Mr Cunningham was shot. She said last night on social media, yes, of course, there's a grieving family here in the case of Mr Hutchings, but people shouldn't forget that the family of John Pat Cunningham are still grieving 47 years after he was shot by soldiers and that grief knows no bounds. Connor, thank you for that. Connor McCauley there in Belfast. The Environmental Protection Agency has published its 2020 report on Ireland's carbon emissions and as their DG Laura Burke told Mary earlier, lockdown resulted in an almost 16% drop in carbon emissions from transport, energy emissions also down nearly 8% during due to the ending of peat fuel generation. But because we were staying at home, the greenhouse gases from our homes were up 9%, agricultural emissions also up slightly, as was the side of the dairy herd. So all all in all, thanks to lockdown, our carbon emissions were down 3.6% last year. But is that anywhere near enough? Not so, says our next guest. She's Dr Hannah Daly, lecturer in energy systems at UCC. An awful lot of data here, Hannah Daly. What does it add up to as far as you're concerned? What it means is that we're far from being on track to meeting our Paris Agreement um, obligations. The UN Secretary General said that climate is a code red for humanity and that we're at the verge of an abyss. And that's not just rhetoric. The doll has has declared a climate emergency and, uh, and young people who I lecture are frightened, they're angry and they feel powerless because 
they didn't cause this climate issue, but they're going to have to deal with it. They're going to have to solve it. And we need to show them that we're, we're meaningfully going to deal with this. The 3.6% reduction in emissions last year is only half the progress that we need to make every single year to meet our climate obligations. The Climate Change Advisory Council is about to announce its first set of recommended carbon budgets for between now and 2030. And irrespective of what that number is, we have to remember yeah. that we're already in the first carbon budget period. So no matter what happens, each tonne of carbon that's emitted now takes away from our collective carbon budget. And the, the burden of cutting carbon is going to have to be shared between sectors. Now, one of the controversial sectors here in terms of that burden sharing, of course, is agriculture. Uh, and you look at, you know, the increase, uh, slight increase in emissions last year, increase from dairy as well. But the dairy herd has increased 45 percent in the past decade. Is that sustainable? It's absolutely not. Agriculture accounts for nearly 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions now, and they're going in completely the wrong direction. There was an increase in emissions last year. The pandemic didn't didn't touch that. And they're backing themselves into a corner, in my opinion, on, on the size of the, the, the national herd. By the way, there is no such thing as a national herd. These are private um, assets held by enterprises. Even though they're very heb- heavily publicly subsidised, um, they are... Um, not there is there is no pub, um, national herd, yeah. so we need to, farmers are also at the front line of climate change. They'll be the first ones to feel the effects of climate change when it does come to Ireland, and it is going to come to Ireland. And there's a huge opportunity for agriculture to diversify and become a meaningful part of being a low energy economy, tree planting, uh, tourism, right. and, and so on. And you mentioned the Climate Advisory Council and we are waiting for their report and we are waiting to see these carbon budgets and there'll be a lot of uh, fallout from that, obviously, between the various sectors. Um, Shouldn't this have all happened sooner? Well, things take time um, and and policies are being made. um, Do you read anything into the delay then in seeing this this climate action plan? Well, four four new members of the council were appointed um, just last week, so I think they need time to get their feet under the table because it's a a big weighty responsibility for them to to recommend carbon budgets. So I'm not surprised it will take um, a little bit more time. And there's going to be quite some reaction, isn't it, when those carbon budgets come out? And given that we've fallen so short on meeting our targets up to now, mm-hmm. you know, how do we stop being climate laggards? Well, we have to face face the reality, and the reality is is that in Ireland we're living far beyond our means. We, if everybody in the world emitted the same amount as as the average Irish person, the world would already have um, warmed by three degrees. That would bring huge catastrophe. So, actually, doing our part means. Um, means everybody coming together, social solidarity, in the same way that that, um, that COVID happened. So we all came together. We trust the science, and we uh, we, we believed uh, the, the kind of the solutions were fair. And that same sort of big societal effort is needed now to meet the carbon budgets and meet our obligations. It's a timely point. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on Morning Ireland, Dr. Hannah Daly, lecturer in energy systems at University College Cork. <laughs> Shakespeare in the Heart is the theme of this year's Wexford Festival Opera, which gets underway today. This year there'll be live stage action with limited capacity. Last year the event was online. Una Kelly is in Wexford for us this morning. The festival is back, Una. What are people saying about the return now to live onstage opera in their town? Well, Mary, most people here seem to take the return of the festival as some kind of return 
to normality and I'm just standing here inside the National Opera House in the town and like stages and concert halls across the country it's been fairly silent for more than 18 months but that all changes today because it is the start of the Wexford Festival Opera running until the 31st of this month and the festival is also celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. There will be some differences from what people might remember in the past though. There won't be the big fireworks display to open the festival and there will be limited capacity of course for audiences. Now we'll hear more from Randall Shannon, the festival executive director in a moment about all of that. But first let's hear the thoughts of some people in the town. I've been asking them if they're looking forward to the festival's return. Very much so, yeah. It's our first year living in Wexford, so very excited about um, getting to see the, the kind of the liveliness of the town and, and being involved in it. So yeah, really looking forward to it. Do you have any reservations about the festival happening when cases are rising again? To be honest, I, I don't um, pay much attention to the numbers and things like that. I just kind of do my own thing, be safe. It's always a great time in, in the town and uh, it's for us it's our first... Uh, time living back in in Wexford and first time living in the town so it's going to be great to be in the middle of it all yeah are you from around here do you have any good memories of the festival in the past yeah I can always remember the um the, the fireworks night was it's a traditional start at the festival so that's a kind of a, a, a touch point in the calendar for us for for uh, many years a big night on on the keys with the big display now it won't be the same this year they won't have the the fireworks display and there'll be limited capacity for some things do you think that'll put a dampener on the festival or do you think people will be just happy something's happening? Yeah, I don't think it'll dampen it really because it's just great to have a festival again rather than kind of waiting for it to come back around. For kids growing up, we all grew up with that, looking forward to the few few firecrackers that went off on the night. Do yourself or any other people in Wexford, you know, maybe feel a bit of caution around having large events when case numbers are rising? No, because most people will, in, in the case of anything like that, it's a sit down, you go in, you wear your mask, you do as I am now, you wear your mask and, and, and look, we, can, we have to keep living as well. Yeah, happy it's back. I won't be going this year because I'd be a bit nervous, but I'm definitely happy it's back. Yeah. You say you'd be too nervous to go this year? Yeah, just to get into crowded areas and things like that. I'd be a bit more nervous about that. Because yeah. I've worked from home, so I haven't been around people that much. If you want to go, it's your choice. You can go, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I'm delighted it's back. That was the thoughts there of some people in Wexford about the return of the festival. Now I'm joined by Randall Shannon. He's the festival's executive director. Randall, it must feel good to have live performances again in the 70th anniversary year. Oh, absolutely. It's exciting and, and a huge relief. This is the first time we've appeared before a live audience in two years. Last year there was a festival, but it was entirely online. And now the, our artistic team, production team and management team have brought it all together, done a fantastic job. We're ready to open the doors and let the audience in to be entertained. Now, it still isn't back to normal. Of course, there's limited capacity. What other public health measures did you have to bear in mind? Well, we've been very careful about everything. We've arranged the seating so that there is social distancing in the auditorium. Uh, vaccination certificates have to be checked as people come into the building. The entire com performing, well, performing and production company have been antigen tested on a regular basis over the past six weeks. We're very careful. And what are the highlights of the festival? Well, of course, all of it is a highlight. Uh, 
the core of the festival, as ever, is three productions, uh, three opera productions. Operas, that you might say, have been forgotten from the, the standard repertoire. Uh, Edmea by Catalani opens tonight. Le Songe de Nuit d'Ete by Thomas and Wintermarschen by Goldmark. Uh, one of them, I'd say, is certainly a forgotten masterpiece, uh, but I leave the audience to decide which one that is. Mm-hmm. As well as that, there's a, a new commission by Andrew, composer Andrew Sinnott, uh, 47, Sa- 47 Saturday. Uh, the young artists will be presenting a production of Bellini's Capuletti e Montecchi, 10 lunchtime recitals, and a lecture by Colm Tobin. Mm-hmm. And Randall, yesterday on Morning Ireland, we were hearing from Angela Dorgan from First Music Connect about the difficulties performers have experienced over the past 18 months. It's been tough. It's been more than tough. It's, to, it's destroying people because uh, a huge number of artists in the country are freelance. They're, there's no corporate backup to what they do and their lives have been damaged and perhaps even destroyed. People have had to leave the business, find other ways of earning a living and, and the mental agonies are, cannot be overestimated. But good to have at least some live performances coming back anyway. And people can find tickets at www.wexfordopera.com. And some of the performances will also be streamed on the RT Culture website, the RT Player and RT Lyric FM if you can't make it down to Wexford in person. The skeletal remains of six people have been uncovered during an archaeological dig in Cork City. The remains were found under Nancy Spain's pub on Barrack Street. Kira Brett is archaeologist at Cork City Council and is on the line now. Kira, why was the dig going on? Well, good morning, Audrey. This, the site is an important regeneration project for Cork City Council. So we are constructing 32-unit social housing development on the site. So MMD construction are on the site on our behalf. And the site is located within the former suburbs of the medieval city of Cork. And it is of important historical and archaeological significance. So all the groundworks at the site were considered to be important. So we um, instructed, I instructed as city archaeologists that they be archaeologically monitored when construction is going on. So that's why the archaeologists were on site. So what was found, Kira? So effectively, um, on Thursday the 7th um, of October last, we discovered the remains of one individual. Um, and as a consequence of that, we have had an archaeological excavation going on on the site. So we have a licensed archaeologist, but we also have an osteoarchaeologist on the site. And in the last week or so, um, on top of that initial one, skelet- one um, skeleton, we've discovered five more individuals on the site. Um, now, the remains are quite fragmentary and it's very early days in the archaeological investigation and it's not possible to maybe definitively date them, but they certainly predate the 19th century buildings on the site. So I think they're possibly likely 18th century or earlier. Wow. And what was on that site uh, well before the pub was there? Well, there were gardens to the rear, uh, basically from... We can see from cartographic sources, from John Roke's maps from 1750s and an earlier map from 1726, that there were structures on the site and there were large garden areas to the rear. So, um, and further up the street, about 500 metres away from the, from the site we're at now, there's the site of a 17th century gallows. And again, and 200 metres away from the site, we have Elizabeth Fort, which is a 17th century fort. So there's quite a lot of... Um, later medieval material in the area. So it's quite a historic area. Absolutely. Are you excited by this find, Kira? 
Oh yeah, we're very excited. Like it's it's not uncommon to find human remains within an urban context, but it's it's not an everyday occurrence, shall we say? So um, no, we're very excited. Um, I suppose we're excited to get the remains off the site and to get them further analysed by the osteoarchaeologist, and also we hope to date the bones by radiocarbon dating. So at the moment we have no. Um, Datable evidence, as in we've no artefacts associated with the skeletal remains, so we really do need to try and date them by radiocarbon dating. Okay, so that's that's next on the agenda then? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And where are they at the moment? Oh, they're still in the ground, they're still okay. being excavated, the site is still under investigation, so we hope that we'll be done by the end of the week. So after that, as, as kind of best practice in these kind of things, they're all removed from the site and obviously they'll be examined by the osteoarchaeologist. Um, she kind of does visual inspections, so she can identify quite a lot of, a lot of things, um, such as the sex of the individuals, um, possible age of them, whether they're adult or juvenile, um, and she can sometimes also identify various diseases and possibly the manner in which they um, died as well. Okay, fascinating. So, um, there's quite a lot of information to come out of it yet. Absolutely. Well, the best of luck to you all. Thank you very much. Kira Brett, archaeologist at Cork City Council. Now this morning we mourn the deaths and celebrate the lives of two of Ireland's most significant poets, Maura Vakanti and Brendan Kennelly. I'm joined now to remember Maura Vakanti by poet and UCC lecturer Alva Nigarve. But first, let's hear a few lines of Maura reading her poem Maraid Asvalia, Margaret Away From Home. Maraid Asvalia, Margaret Away From Home. Sarachinius Grauschimhirside, Kredmelatachalinvig, the Echtentanner Hugheg. I bought four chops. I put four plates to heat before I remembered that you were gone on holidays. Believe me, little girl, it was an inkling of the bitterness of death. Alvani Garve, good morning to you. Good morning. She was a woman of extraordinary substance, wasn't she? And uh, we will talk about her poetry, but talk to us a little bit about uh, her background and her upbringing. Yeah, I suppose initially I'd just like to extend my sympathies to, to Patrick and to Margaret and her stepdaughter, Fidelma, for this, I suppose, a time of great sorrow for them. But an extraordinary woman, um, she was born in 1922 in Dublin into a very prominent Republican family. Um, both of her parents were involved in the 1916 Rising. Uh, her father, Sean McEntee, would go on to become Thánaiste in a Fianna Fáil government. Her mother, Margaret Brown, uh, was a scholar. She taught Irish at Alexandra College and then at UCD. And later on, Moira would go on to marry Conor Cruz O'Brien. So you could say she was very much accustomed to life in the public eye. Mm. She she was a high flyer before we knew the word high flyer in, in this country. Uh, an academic, a diplomat, um, working with the United Nations. 
Yeah, her own CV, it's, it's quite remarkable really the CV that she, she garnered throughout her life. As you say, the first woman to be called to the bar in Ireland, a diplomat, a scholar, a critic, and of course, most famously, a poet. And her, her legacy, I think, is something that we will be talking about for many years to come. Well, well let's talk about the, the poetry and maybe talk about it in the, in the context of um, her connection to West Kerry and, and the West Kerry Gaeltacht. Yes, yeah, so she she uh, would spend um, a lot of her summer holidays and Christmas holidays and Easter holidays in Dunchuin in the West Kerry Gwaltacht. Her uncle, Padraig de Bruyne, who was Monsignor and was president of Maynooth University, he had a house there called Tignacille. And she really absorbed the Irish language of West Kerry, that particular dialect. And she said she never remembered a time where she wasn't bilingual. Um, I think, you know, it's quite significant that she she felt that she could express things in this dialect of Irish that she perhaps never could have in this middle class convent English that she felt that she had um, acquired in Dublin. So she in, in I think we find in her poetry in Irish that this, she it's can really challenge the orthodoxy of the time. Um, I might give you a little sample, shall I? Please do. So this is from Carunti Void in Yogain. Biog Vjauner Audestine, Biog Vjauner Hrosna Sagart, Er Gach Mi Achveshinte, Idir Tu Agasfala. I care little for people's suspicions, I care little for priests' prohibitions, for anything save to lie stretched between you and the wall. So those lines. Uh, were published in a 1956 collection. So you can really tell that, you know, they would have been quite challenging for the time. And I think had they been published in English, they would most likely have been censored. You met her, you interviewed her. How will you remember her? Oh, she was a formidable woman. Um, she uh, was uh, had a fierce intelligence and that day that I interviewed her for Cora magazine, um, it was with great trepidation, actually, that I, I, I travelled to her, her house in, in Hoth. Um, but she was so warm and so welcoming and spoke very frankly. She answered my questions with great honesty. And uh, I, I really treasure that afternoon I spent with her. And we thank you for your time this morning, Alvin Garve, for remembering Maura Vakanthi with us. Begin again to the summoning birds to the sight of light at the window, begin to the roar of morning traffic all along Pembroke Road. Every beginning is a promise, born in light and dying in dark. Determination and exultation of springtime flowering the way to work. Begin to the pageant of queuing girls, to the arrogant loneliness of swans in the canal. The wonderful sound of Brendan Kennelly reading Begin. Well, we can talk now to another of our finest writers and poets to pay tribute to his friend Brendan Kennelly, Gerald Daw. Good morning, Gerald. You're very welcome to the programme and I know that you were very close to him. Uh, how do you remember him this morning? Well, I mean, first of all, it's a great loss to his family and his uh, inner circle of friends uh, in Kerry and in, in Dublin and elsewhere. It's a big loss. Uh, Brendan, 
Brendan was unique. Um, uh, I mean, I was just thinking about him last night and this morning, and um, uh, our friendship was based in Trinity, where we worked together for, uh, well, 25, 30 years, thereabouts. Um, and, uh, I mean, uh, he would swing in uh, to the office on certain occasions and uh, speak about something that he had, he had been on his mind, uh, there was a touch of genius about these kind of uh, uh, sort of off-the-cuff chats that we used to have. But I remember walking down O'Connell Street, O'Connell Street, we sometimes would go down and have tea and scone somewhere. And generally, a, a journey would take uh, 10, 15 minutes. But with Brendan, it was half an hour, 40 minutes. He was always being stopped and people would talk to him. Uh, I mean, he was... Uh, he, he was almost completely rare at the time insofar as that everybody knew Brendan um, and he had this sort of ease. Uh, Dublin was just a village as far as he was concerned and uh, he used to walk around it as if it was uh, back in Kerry uh, where his heart lay. I mean, he often spoke to me about Kerry and about his people there, about yeah. the landscape. Um, it was absolutely crucial to him. And he called himself the Kerry Babe and you the Belfast boy. And he, he was, he had such a warmth and compassion with him. And he brought people in. He he included people. He almost became others in order to understand them. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, always impressed me uh, greatly about his poems was, I mean, he had this epic reach, uh, uh, the poems uh, on Cromwell, and Judas, uh, um, I, I mean, he's, I think the big thing about Brandon was he adored uh, the spoken verse. He loved the way in which people could articulate and express themselves through poetry. Um, a, a little known feature of his life was uh, back in the early days, probably in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, he was instrumental in setting up the writer in prison scheme and uh, it was a it, it was a breakthrough moment because it, what he was trying to do was to give people from every kind of background, every kind of experience, the opportunity to express themselves. Um, he was uh, he, he he had a great democratic spirit to him, and his sense of uh, poetry was that it was an open art that uh, it communicated emotional feeling, um, and of course. His, the big influence on his life outside of his family and the landscape of Kerry was Yeats. Um, uh, he used to speak uh, as if Yeats was literally in the, in the room next door. He had a huge sense of intimacy with the work. Uh, and, of course, Kavanagh. Um, but, uh, I mean, my, my sense of Brendan, I can hear his voice as clear as clear could be. Um, and the... Uh, the smile uh, and, and, and the, the sense in which, you know, no matter what life threw at you, there was always a way through it. Um, he was, a, he was a, great, a great human being, and he came from a wonderful generation of Irish writers, Ivan uh, uh, Boland, uh, the Longleys, uh, Edna and Michael Longley. Um, I mean, there, 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 there was a great uh, flowering in Trinity uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, and he, he was very much a part of it. Absolutely. And Gerald, uh, we heard him reading uh, begin at the start of our chat. Your favourite poem of his is My Dark Fathers. Would you read the first verse for us? 
I could indeed. I mean, this is one of the uh, early uh, hits, if you like, of of uh, uh, of Brendan's uh, writing. It's a stunning piece. My dark fathers lived the intolerable day, committed always to the night of wrong. Stiffened at the hearthstone, the woman lay, perished feet nailed to her man's breastbone. Grim houses beckoned in the swelling gloom of monster fields where the Atlantic night fettered the child within the pit of doom and everywhere a going down of light. Gerald, thank you so much indeed for paying such a beautiful tribute to your friend Brendan Kennelly, the, the wonderful poet who has died. Gerald Daw, thank you very much. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.